Well, good morning. I can see you all uh, braved the ice this morning to come out. What are you laughing at? We've got loads of ice in our freezer at home. I want to begin this morning as we look at this question of faith or reason. Um, I want to share with you a picture of a uh, billboard that was run. I'm doing something wrong. There we go. This was a billboard that was posted by the American Atheists. I believe that this was um, uh, first posted about uh, three years ago. I think it was up in the New Jersey, New York area. Uh, as I understand, there have been others posted around the country. Um, the billboard reads, you know it's a myth. The se this season, celebrate reason. American atheists, and I, I love this, reasonable since 1963. Couldn't help but wonder, what about pre-1963? <laughs> If you haven't noticed, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a new atheism that's uh, been sweeping our country. I know Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. And it's not really a new atheism, it's a, just a repackaging of an atheism that's uh, been there, been around since the garden, the fall in the garden. But in this uh, new atheism, <clears throat> what we do see in its newness is that atheism today is, is more radical. It's, uh, it's more militant. It's more in your face. Um, I use the illustration of the billboard uh, just coming fresh off of the Christmas season. Uh, perhaps uh, you heard uh, the various accounts in the news of the continual uh, trying to eradicate all vestiges of the Christian message, the message of Jesus Christ from the public square, uh, from the workplace, from uh, the halls of education, from the halls of government. Uh, it's everywhere that this new atheism is uh, seeking to eradicate that message of Jesus Christ from the public arena. Uh, there's an anti-intellectualism today that says that to be a Christian, that you actually have to amputate your brain. Uh, Christians are labeled today as, uh, as just taking a leap of faith or of just having a, a blind faith. In fact, faith and reason are juxtaposed as polar opposites. Uh, J.P. Moreland in his book, Love Your God With All Your Mind, says the following, faith is now understood as a blind act of will, a decision to believe something that is either independent of reason or that is a simple choice to believe while ignoring the paltry lack of evidence for what is believed. That is the popular culture's view of what you and I call 
faith. And my thesis for us this morning is this. Yes, what we believe as Christians is indeed based on faith. But not faith exclusively, but on reason as well. And you and I can be both encouraged and emboldened to both live our faith and to share our faith because ours is a reasonable faith, regardless of what the culture is trying to ram down our throats today. And I would like for us to look at Luke's gospel, specifically Luke's introduction to his gospel, um, to encourage us in our faith, to embolden us in our faith. And I would like us, as we look at these first four verses of Luke's gospel, I would like to use this as a means to encourage, to embolden us today. Follow along as I read in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. You know, here in what we know as Luke's gospel, um, it's believed that Luke is the author, although there is nothing here where he personally identifies himself as Luke. Uh, in doing so, we can say that Luke, or this author, is a man of humility in the fact that he leaves his name out of this gospel. We also um, can uh, make the connection with the book of Acts. If you flip over to Acts chapter 1, and if you've ever never noticed this before, that right there, similar to Luke's gospel, the book of Acts begins, the first account I composed, there's this name again, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, the book of Acts is a companion writing to the gospel of Luke. Uh, the author is writing or the recipient of his writing is this one Theophilus who we'll talk about in a moment. Um, reading through Luke's gospel and even in the books of Acts, we can tell that this individual is an educated, cultured individual. He's, he's highly educated. Um, as you look in the book of Acts, uh, and we find out that later on uh, when Luke meets Paul, he's, he's almost a constant companion of Paul uh, from his second, Paul's second missionary journey on. So he's a well-traveled man. And as a physician, uh, we know in Colossians 4.14 that Paul refers to and names Luke 
as the beloved physician. And so as a physician, he's got a scientific mind. Um, also, we look over in Paul's uh, final prison epistle, uh, 2 Timothy, where Paul is there under house arrest in Rome. The end is near, and he makes the statement that only Luke is with me. Luke is not an eyewitness to the things that he writes about in his gospel, but he receives his information from eyewitnesses. He receives firsthand eyewitness accounts concerning the things that he writes about Jesus. Um, notice, too, that he says here, uh, or implies that he has had access to other earlier narratives concerning the things that Jesus did and taught. Uh, he says that others had compiled those accounts. Um, it's conjectured that uh, scholars believe that Mark was written prior to Luke's gospel. And so one of those documents that, that Luke may have been using uh, was possibly Mark's gospel as well because as you look at, at Luke and Mark, as you compare those, uh, those synoptic gospels, there are similarities in some of the content of those two gospels. Keep in mind too that in the gospels, um, which critics will uh, lob at us is that there are, uh, they're different but we would say that they're different by design, that each one of the gospel writers had a specific reason for writing about the things that they did in the life of Christ to almost take as like a multifaceted diamond and to look at it from different angles and different positions. Um, he Luke says that, you know, these other accounts that were written, apparently they did not suit his purpose. And so it is that Luke, as we find here in this introduction, he's deciding to write down his own account. Um, what I love about uh, Luke and the way he begins this, and by the way, um, this, these four verses, this is a formal introduction to this gospel. It's a formal introduction that we don't see in any other New Testament writings laid out as clearly as Luke lay it at, lays it out here. And one of the things that I appreciate so much is that he, uh, he, he takes some of the guesswork. He takes out some of the, the scholarly work that, that we've got to do to find out why is it that he's writing this. One of the things that we always want to do when we were, are approaching the scriptures is we want to determine what is the author's intent. What is the author's purpose for writing this? And if we can discern that, that's going to explain a lot of what follows. And so right here, uh, Luke very clearly tells us what his purpose is. Um, he claims to be able to write an orderly account based on his investigation. Um, concerning the things accomplished by us, he wants to make clear to this Theophilus and the readers of his gospel the facts concerning the life 
the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wants to give Theophilus a clear understanding of what has happened. Um, he says, you know, in his, uh, at the end of his introduction, so that you may know the exact truth, the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And what's his method? He says very clearly here, he's launched his own independent investigation. And not only that, but he says a careful, a conscientious investigation. Uh, conscientious and careful, as I said before, in, in, um, in obtaining those firsthand eyewitnesses accounts of those who, who walked and ministered with and to the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. He seeks out those who had personally known Christ uh, because, again, as I said earlier, he was not a personal eyewitness or didn't have firsthand knowledge of Jesus himself. And he questions these witnesses. We can almost imagine that Luke has possibly gone to the extent of traveling throughout the region and seeking out these eyewitnesses where Jesus had lived and where he had, had done his works of power and ministry. Um, we can say... Uh, that Luke was led by the Spirit of God to, to do, undertake this work. Um, he's led by uh, God in the inspiration. This, this is, a, this is a, a picture here of what inspiration looks like in the case of Luke, where he says that, you know, I, I, I felt like it was fitting for me to do this. He's under the inspiration of God to investigate and to write down these very words of God. And what he provides for us is that he provides a historical document. This is the word of God, while at the same time, it's a reliable historical document. And see, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes that we forget that this is not like other historical documents that we just take at face value. It's not like other historical documents. It's the inspired word of God. And yet, nonetheless, it is a reliable historical document. You remember what I said in the beginning? My purpose today is to encourage you in your faith, to embolden you in your faith, to not shrink back from the culture, but to embrace the culture, to confront the culture with the truth of God's word. You and I have here a reliable historical document. Um, it's, it's, it's believed that Luke is possibly written some 30 years following the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, take, for instance, the, uh, the, the two biographies that were originally written on Alexander the Great, who uh, passed away in, what, 323 B.C. Those biographies that we do not even question their validity or veracity were not written until 400 years after Alexander the Great 
passed off the scene. 400 years, and yet historians don't question the content of those biographies concerning Alexander the Great. Here we are looking at a historical document that is written some 30 years after Jesus has died and been resurrected. That, my friend, is reliable. This is reliable testimony that you and I can tank to the bank. Its author's style is gospel. It's gospel literature. Now, what do we mean by that? By gospels, we don't mean that it's a biography of Jesus because obviously, as we look at the gospels, we don't, uh, we don't take or see everything from birth to his years of growing up. I mean, it's not a, a, uh, an exhaustive biography. But by gospel, we mean that it's looking at a specific point in his life. Now, as I say that, Luke's gospel, yes, it tells us more about the birth of Jesus than any of the other gospels. It's the typical gospel that we read um, at Christmas. Um, because it does tell us a lot about the birth of Jesus. And yet there's that gap period where we don't really know that much about Jesus growing up years. But it's a gospel, it's looking at the specific earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as well as looking, up, looking at the events leading up to his death his burial, and ultimately the resurrection. The Gospels are our main source of the words and works of Jesus Christ. And as again, I said it's a focus on his earthly ministry and on his death and resurrection. The word gospel, many of us know it means good news, good news. And again, um, this, this really... In this introduction, it just strikes me how uh, we can tend to gloss over this, can't we? You know, that this is like, oh, this is the, you know, the author's um, uh, introductory remarks. And I, I want to get to the good stuff. I want to get to the meat of this gospel. Um, think about, I don't know how, if you're like, you, typically I'll open up a book and I'll, I'll gloss over the preface, you know, and I'll just go right to chapter one, yeah? Well, sometimes there's really good information right there in that preface. The same thing here with Luke's introduction. And so what I would like to do as we look at this orderly account of the facts upon which our Christian faith rests is I'd like us just to, um, to walk through this, uh, th this passage. Again, looking back there in verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things among us. You know, again, uh, in that day, uh, oral tradition uh, was the means by which stories uh, were handed down. And so he's relying on the oral tradition of, of these who have compiled these accounts, uh, the stories of Jesus that have been passed on. But also notice that these are accounts that were written down. 
So they are um, extra biblical writings, uh, some of which, you know, that we, we know nothing of today. But very clearly, there were those who, um, knowing of Jesus Christ, sought to write down their own accounts. And he says of the things that were accomplished among us, the events, again, surrounding Jesus' birth, uh, his earthly ministry, de his death, and his resurrection, the very words and works of Jesus. Notice in verse 2, he says, just as they were handed down to us. Again, repeating that Luke is saying here that I, 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 this is not firsthand account on my part. I was not an eyewitness. And yet I'm relying not only on the oral tradition, but also on these writings that have been passed on to us. And he has this, um, this reliance, this primary reliance on what has been preserved in writing. He goes on to say that by those who were for, by, from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Uh, this, is a, this is a serious claim of, of, uh, of research, of historical research, because um, he's establishing the fact that these are firsthand eyewitness accounts that I am using to compile my account of Jesus' life and earthly ministry. Uh, carefully researched and documented in writing. And those, uh, uh, th this account or these accounts are very much, uh, have very much to do with, with the veracity of the Gospels, of what you and I can claim is true, um, that this is gospel truth. Um, Luke is, is very much so establishing the validity of the information uh, that he's writing in his narrative. You know, I couldn't help but thinking about um, last November, uh, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of, of, of John Kennedy. Um, I grew up in Dallas, was in Dallas as an elementary school student. I believe I was in the seventh grade at the time. Um, but that, that, that event just, just looms so large in my mind. Uh, my mom had taken my little brother, who was not in school at the time, uh, they had gone, driven over to Lemon Avenue um, and watched the motorcade as, as it had left Love Field and was making its way down Lemon Avenue uh, to downtown Dallas. And uh, by the time my mother got back home, uh, she was greeted at the door uh, by uh, the cleaning lady at our house um, who said, Mrs. Gordon, the president's been shot. And of course, my mother thinking, well, I just saw the president of the United States, her question to her was, the president of what? And just could not believe that whom she had just seen moments before had, had now been shot and by then was, was pronounced dead. Um, perhaps in November, uh, if you were like me, watching the History Channel and CNN, uh, all of the stories uh, concerning the assassination of President Kennedy. And there was one story which was an interview that particularly caught my interest. And it was the interview with uh, uh, the Secret Service, Spe Secret Service Special Agent Clint Hill, who was assigned to the Presidential 
um, detail that day in Dallas. And Clint Hill is the Secret Servant Service agent who in the Zapruder film we see climbing up on the back of the limousine uh, just after the shots were fired. And Clint Hill's testimony of what happened that day and what he was doing was just absolutely riveting. Um, not only has this man to this day continued to live with the realization that uh, we failed him that day, but just uh, the, the harrowing events of, of, that, of that moment, as he said that he climbed up on the back of that, that limo that then took off and headed down Stemmons uh, Freeway at speeds up to 80 miles an hour on the way to Parkland Hospital. Clint Hill, by the way, is the only remaining survivor of the, uh, those who were riding in the limo that day uh, to Parkland Hospital. Why is Clint Hill's testimony or his account so riveting? Because he was an eyewitness. Because he was there. Because he experienced it. And the same can be said about Luke's gospel. He is talking with people who were there. People who experienced it. People who were alive even at the time that he's writing this. And even the detractors who were alive at this time who could have just debunked this whole account. And yet the church would eventually recognize the veracity of this gospel account and would recognize it as one of the inspired writings of God himself. He says as he goes on, it seemed fitting for me as well. It seemed fitting. Again, as I mentioned before, it's kind of a little glimpse of inspiration of where did he get this urge, this sense of, you know, this seems fitting for me to sit down and write this. Those gentle nudgings of the Spirit of God, not only in Luke's life, but in your life and my life as well. Not that he would be inspiring us to write because this is the closed canon. This is the complete written revelation of God. And yet God through his spirit in a similar manner works in our lives, giving us those promptings and those gentle nudgings. He says, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Notice a careful investigation, a thorough, the thoroughness of an investigative reporter. I don't know, one of my favorite authors is, is Lee Strobel, a Case for Christ, Case for Faith. Um, just, uh, he was an investigative reporter for the Ch Chicago Tribune. And he uses that skill in the ways that he writes concerning um, the, 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 the things of Christ and the things of, of, of God's word. The thoroughness that he goes to to, in, to interview the experts um, 
And that's no, no different here with Luke in his gospel. And then he says, Luke says, to write it out in consecutive order. In other words, that, that Luke is wanting to preserve this history. He's wanting to provide a historical record of the words and works of Jesus Christ in this gospel narrative. My dad was a uh, naval officer in World War II. As a matter of fact, uh, dad received his commission as a naval officer at Navy Pier in Chicago on the morning of October 18, 1943. That night, he married Adele Whitaker, my mother. And within two months, dad was overseas. Uh, he was aboard an LST uh, landing ship tank. Some dad always said it referred to long, slow target. <laughs> but dad was, uh, he was in the South Pacific island hopping as, as the allies were taking island by island back from the Japanese. And I grew up hearing the stories. Uh, my dad um, occasionally talked about his war experiences. Again, I'm sure that there were some that he didn't bother to share with us kids. Um, but not only hearing the stories uh, of dad and his experiences, but mom as well. Um, dad, again, uh, when he boarded, he met his ship down in New Orleans and sailed through the Panama Canal to, to the west coast to uh, San Francisco. My mom took a train from Chicago and met him out there in San Francisco and they were able to uh, spend a few nights together and uh, one day, you know, mom told the story of she would go down to the pier with the wives uh, in the early evening to see if the fleet was gonna sail back in, which th they did that, they would sail out, they'd sail back in. And uh, she said one day they went down and the fleet uh, didn't come back. And they knew that they had sailed overseas. I didn't realize that as a child, how significant that was, those stories. If you've ever read Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, I thought my mom and dad's story could have been a chapter in that book. And it wasn't until uh, our oldest daughter, Katie, uh, got to college and she had to interview my mom and dad for a paper she was doing, but she was talking to Kathy and my wife Kathy and me. She said, you know, Gamma and Papa are living history. And it really struck me when she said that. And I thought of all those stories, I thought I wanna preserve those stories. And so Thanksgiving of 1999, up at my mom and dad's lake house one evening, I put their two easy chairs together. I put my video camera on a tripod, positioned it right in front of them, sat them down. I asked one question and mom and dad talked for the next hour and a half. And I was able to preserve that as a permanent record. And little did I know that my mom would be gone 18 months later. But what I wanted to do was to preserve the record of their war experiences. I wanted to have a, a undisputed account, firsthand account, 
from those two who experienced that and shared those stories. And I was able to copy those onto DVD and give them to each of my brothers and my sister, which we cherish to this day. That's what Luke is desiring. He's wanting to preserve a permanent account, a permanent record, a historical record of all that Jesus did and taught in his earthly ministry and this earth. And we can be so thankful the way that God has used this man and to use the other writers, authors of scripture to that end. He says that this is addressed in verse 3 to most excellent Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus, the name means friend of God. What a great name, friend of God. He's a Gentile Christian. Uh, the way he's addressed here is most excellent. He's uh, probably some kind of a Roman official with a high status. He might even be a, a Roman governor, but he's a friend of Luke as well. But notice that he says the reason that he is doing this. What is his intent in preserving this historical document? He says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. Luke wants Theophilus. Luke wants other readers of his gospel to know, to know the exact truth. You know, we live in a culture today that is now saying in its postmodernism that truth cannot be known. That whatever is your truth may be true for you, but my truth is true for me. Um, even if they are diametrically opposed. Um, Ravi Zacharias, he, he illustrates our culture as the, the, the woman who's, she's on a flight at night and, and she's terrified of flying in the dark. And um, the flight attendant comes back and trying to console her. Uh, she points out the window and she tells the woman, she says, you see that light out the window there? It was the navigation light at the end of the wing. She said, you see that light? And the woman says, yes. And the flight attendant said, now, I want you to look out the other window on the other side of the plane, and you see that light out there. And the woman said, yes. And the flight attendant said, as long as we stay between those two lights, <laughs> we're okay. We laugh, but that's our culture. As long as we're staying between the lights that are moving, the culture is moving, we're okay. You see, truth is more like the navigation beacon that directs the autopilot and keeps that plane on course that is immovable, that is fixed, not as the moving lights. 
Our gospel or this gospel rests upon these divinely accredited certainties. And it's not an imaginary system or uh, group of myths or fables as the critics would claim today. But it's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the reality of the historical life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ upon which our faith rests. And so you and I need not fear because we can rest our faith on this document. You know, uh, Alice in Wonderland, I don't know if you remember the part where she comes to the fork in the road and she doesn't know which way to go. And she hears something and she looks up in the tree there at the fork in the road and it's the Cheshire cat. And she asks the cat, which way should I go? And the Cheshire cat asked her back, well, where are you going? And she said, well, I don't know. With which the Cheshire cat responded, then it doesn't matter. You see, it does matter. It matters that we know where we're going. It matters that we know and that we embrace truth. It matters. And as I conclude today, because again, I haven't really answered the question faith or reason, have I? What is faith? We know from the scriptures that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of not, things not seen. We know that by faith, men of old gained approval. How is it that an Old Testament saint is saved by faith? How is it that a New Testament saint is saved by faith? And we also know from Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible. It's impossible to please God. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, through faith. J.P. Moreland, apologist, he says, faith is a power or skill to act in accordance with the nature of the kingdom of God. A trust in what we have reason to believe is true. Understood in this way, we see that faith is built on reason. So what is Reason. Well, we know that God is an omniscient God, don't we? That he knows everything. That you and I, as we're created in the image of God, we are created with all of the components of personality that God has himself. Not all of his attributes, but that we are possess, possessors of intellect, emotion, and will. And so it is that God in Isaiah chapter 1, he says, come, let us reason together. Uh, we look over in Acts, we see Paul in, in Thessalonica, where it says that Paul went into the synagogue and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And by the end of that chapter, he's already over in Athens, where there too we see that Paul was reasoning, reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Again, J.P. Moreland says, 
I do not mean by the term reason something that is opposed to faith or revelation. By reason, I mean all our faculties relevant to gaining knowledge and justifying our beliefs about different things. You know, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And how did he answer that? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. You see, you and I have been given a tremendous faculty in our minds. Remember in the account of the Tower of Babel, where God looked down at the tower that was being built in his summation that said that God realized that man could accomplish whatever he put his mind to. We're to be using the faculties that God has given us. You and I need to know what we believe and why we believe it if we are going to refute the new atheism, the naysayers, the anti-intellectualists of this day, those who claim that somehow as Christians that we have to amputate our brains to believe all that we say that we believe. But we must recognize this, that in our total depravity, which does not mean that we are as depraved as we possibly could be, but when we talk about total depravity and what sin has done to us, how sin has, has warped us, it means that we've been affected in every aspect, every area of our lives, in our intellect, in our emotion, in our will. And so we have to be careful in our reasoning because our reasoning can be flawed, can it? Our reasoning sometimes can go like this. Why are fire engines red? Well, fire trucks have four wheels and they have eight firemen. And if you do the math, four plus eight, that's 12. And 12, uh, there's 12 inches in a ruler. And well, Queen Elizabeth was a ruler. And the Queen Elizabeth is a ship that sails the seas. And in the seas, we know that there are fish. And obviously, we know that fish have fins. And the fins hate the Russians. And the Russians are red. And fire engines are always Russian, so that's why fire engines are red. <laughs> Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? As I said in the beginning, what we believe as Christians is based on faith. The reformers, sola fide, by faith, alone are we saved. But also, our Christian faith is based on reason. Ours is a reasonable faith. And you and I can be encouraged to both live and to share that faith that we know, that we know is a reasonable faith, regardless of what the culture says or thinks. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are just so humbled 
um, that you have not only willed to make yourself known to us, but that, Father, um, you have especially done that, not only through your written word, but more importantly, through your living word, Jesus Christ the Lord. And, Father, as we consider our own faith, our own reason, may we not divorce those two, but, Father, may we be about knowing what we believe and why we believe it, and that that, as we have said today, would indeed encourage us and embolden us to, the, to confront the culture uh, wherever we may find ourselves doing so. And we just pray this, Father, all to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. We have some prayer partners up front here. I'm going to be down front here. Let me just say this. If you know nothing of this faith that we talk about, or maybe you've been wrestling with this faith, friend, you are not here by accident today. And I invite you to come down. Um, there are no stupid questions, if I can say it that way. We would love to talk with you, and we would love to help you. As Paul says, may the grace and the peace, and it's always grace before there can then be peace. May the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Have a great day and a great week. Amen.